you need to get out and actually speak to people directly and engage in their lives, not just assume that you've done research, not just assume that because you've asked them some questions in a questionnaire or you've done your user survey that you understand them. You actually need to get out and engage in their lives, meet them where they are and understand them. The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Donald Farmer, a Chief Innovation Officer at Nobody Studios. Now, Donald is an independent strategy advisor specializing in analytics and innovation. He works with global enterprises, startups, and some of the world's largest software companies. He invites public market investors with KeyBank Mosaic and several private equity and venture firms. I have the pleasure to work with Donald at our venture studio, Nobody Studios. He also serves as an advisor for many startups. He's an internationally recognized speaker, and writer in the field of analytics, but is very much involved in advising enterprises and nonprofits in emerging economies on innovation strategy and the uses of data. He's done everything from start a fish farming startup to be the face of business intelligence for Microsoft and working with Bill Gates. I'm truly excited to have him on this show. But before we dive into what he's been doing today, let's go back to where it all got started. I really don't have any formal education in computing or computer science. I've never been interested particularly in computers for their own sake. I mean, for example, I can't tell you how much RAM I have on my laptop or the disk size. I can't tell you what chip is in there. People keep asking me, you know, what graphics chip have you got? What chip set is it? No idea. Couldn't care less. I'm really interested in what I can do with it, but I'm not really interested in the technology for its own sake. And that, I think, comes from the fact that I sort of grew up with it, so I I was really interested in what I could do, in the leverage that I could get from it. And I see the the machine as an intellectual lever, as an intellectual engine that enables me to do more. And that's super interesting to me. The technology itself, I mean, I can geek out over algorithms to a certain extent, but what can I do with them is really important. So that's actually been a very formative aspect of my life. The fact that I took time out from my so-called career and spent time looking after my son for three years where I trained as a nursery nurse to make sure I could run the nursery in the village, along with some of the other moms. That was, that was super important because it gave a different perspective to my career. But I didn't particularly care about becoming a dot-com millionaire. That wasn't particularly interesting compared to getting the balance right. And then, of course, when I joined Microsoft, there's another different perspective that comes there. So those were all turning points you know, in my life. What strikes me as well straight away, though, is your intellectual pursuit on things as much as anything, right? Like, you know, getting to know you over the last couple of months, like you're a real deep thinker. I love you talk about, well, pretty much anything. It's quite fascinating to me. I, I, I really enjoy the way your mind works. But even you're alluding to that with technology, right? Like you're always thinking about like in the use of what? How is this going to be different? How is it going to help us change the way things are done? And they're great questions because I think, especially when someone might look at your resume and they see things like Microsoft, they see Click, they see these huge successful technology companies. 
And yet so much of what your work is around is more entrepreneurialism, true innovation in terms of changing the way things were done as today, as how it could be different in the future. Can you share a little bit about what helped you do some of that? And even from the early days when you were doing startups and all sorts of roles, ever as you said, even from caring for your your son, living on this tiny island that you grew up on in Scotland, with a small community to like sitting in rooms with Bill Gates, telling you, you know, you're the face of BI for Microsoft, so you better get this right. You know, like they're very different worlds. So share a little bit of some of the twists and turns on those. Yeah, so I mean, obviously the the entire life story would take a, a novel to sort of write down, but there are some kind of key themes running through it. And one of them that's very important to me is I'm really interested in doing things differently, not just better. So I'm a bit of a contrarian. I'm more inclined to kind of burn the house down and build an extension, ironically. But I I really feel that I'm I'm interested in that, that rather than just incrementing on what we already do, what is the real alternative? A lot of that comes from dissatisfaction with the world. I'll be very honest about that. First of all, I don't particularly like the way the world is in many ways, you know, politically, socially. So I want to change that. So I'm a very radical mindset there, which I bring into a whole lot of other aspects of my work because I don't accept some of the kind of basic ground rules of our society as being as being relevant. And I bring that into my work. I don't accept the basic ground rules of some of the technology kind of rules and some of the technology practices that we have. So I'm really interested in that. That's, that, that's quite radical. Another thing that goes through my work all the time is I'm interested in, in people. And that sounds very vague. I'm a people person or whatever. But, but I don't really mean it quite as vaguely as that. What I mean is that the human component of the world is incredibly important. We're not cogs in a machine. We can't be aggregated up into some general description of society where you say Americans, Irish people, Scottish people do this. We all, we all tend to do that, of course. But actually, the individual person is so complex that we really need to understand how individual people work and how do we reach out to them as people? So rather than reaching out, for example, to business user, for example, let's say I'm building some analytics software and I think, well, this is a business user. They work in marketing. How do I help them do marketing better? But there's a whole lot of other stuff. How do I help them get home at the weekends? How do I help them with their promotions? How do I help them with the stress they feel when they don't reach their numbers? How do I help them with the, the sense of inadequacy they feel? if things aren't going well for them? How do I help them with their concern about their retirement and their job? These things are very human. And if we think of human beings in those terms, rather than just as aggregates or as faceless machines, then I think that's really critical for innovation. I think it's really critical for product design. And I think it's really critical for our general approach to technology in the world. So these two things are really important to me. Yeah, yeah no, and, and it shines through, like, you know, having seen some of that by working with you, you know, the last question I ever hear you ask is, is this a, a female age 35 to 75 that lives in, like, like demographic these people to, to bits, right? Like, it's, it's always driven from some of these intents that you're describing. And that is contrary for many people to design from that point, which is kind of interesting. And we love contrarianism on this show. That's why it's called our <laughs> So what, what were some of the first examples of that for you then really sort of coming to life 
both you understanding to design from this point of view and then some of the products or choices that you made maybe in products that you were making that sort of brought this perspective to life? So I can tell you, I'd actually had a, my own startup. So I'd been looking after my son for about three years. And uh, then it was time to kind of get back on the horse and do some real work again. And I was doing some consulting and I was doing some consulting in the Scottish Highlands. And one of the main industries there is fish farming. And fish farming, as it turns out, is an industry which in those days had a lot of data. So we started doing, doing that. And then I thought, well, how can we build a product out of some of this? Because one of my other passions is productizing, not just solving problems. Even though I talk about the importance of understanding individuals, I don't want to solve a problem for one person. I want to solve a problem for many, many people. So how do I build a product? So we built a, a product which took data from certain data from fish farms about fish sizes and weights and things like that and enabled you to do some of the fairly complicated calculations about the amount of food and temperatures and stuff that you have to give. Our first customer was in Japan. And that's great. You know, so, some software in Japan, very first thing. And at that point, I hadn't been to Japan. I knew a bit about Japanese culture because I was interested in poetry, but I didn't speak any Japanese and been to Japan. But we built, we packaged up the software, sent it off to them, and they loved it, except they had a big complaint, a really significant complaint. And the significant complaint was that if there was an error in the data entry, back in those days, we made the computer speaker go beep, just go beep, beep. And they said, we can't have that. <laughs> we, we absolutely can't have that. And I said, well, you know, this, you know, I guess I can fix it. But what's the problem? He said, well, everybody in the office knows that I made a mistake. <laughs> and everybody in the office hears that I'm making like 10 mistakes an hour. And it's embarrassing. And I'm losing face. And I can't, I can't, you know, I go to lunch with my colleagues and they say, oh, you made 10 mistakes this morning. And I, I, I never crossed my mind, you know. Frankly, in the Scottish fish farming office, it was going beep, 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 beep all over the <laughs> office and nobody cared. They were more or less trying to do it. I go to Japan and it's, oh my goodness, you know, you're, you're, you're making me look like a fool in front of everyone because this thing goes beep. That was, that was it was a cultural learning. Absolutely, but it's actually yeah. a profound personal learning as well, that this actually mattered to the person. There was something that mattered to them beyond getting it right, which was not being seen to get it wrong. And that's a very personal thing, which had nothing to do with whether they could do their job efficiently and had nothing to do with the software making it better. It was very personal. And, and I, I, I learned a lot from that, actually. <laughs> now, I don't want to yeah. read too much into it, but it was actually a, it was a pivotal moment in my, in my career, actually. You know, that's why I love these stories, right? Because they just bring so many things to life. You know, like, is the software performing as designed? Yes. Yes, it is. It, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 but I think it talks to this idea of, sure, you can execute the algorithm correctly and make sure that the fish are fed and the temperatures are correct and all the mathematics can be absolutely perfect. But we're talking about the context about when people are using a product, like the things that are around them, the things that make them feel good at their jobs, that feel, make them feel absolutely. successful at their job. And we have such a responsibility for this. One of the companies I, I worked with, one of the startups, you know, you say the software is working as designed. You know, we all have these bug resolutions. It's not a bug, it's working as designed. Well, we had working as designed and we had working as badly designed, uh, which turned out to be... <laughs> By far the commonest bug resolution, yeah. That is working as designed, but, but really it's really bad. It shouldn't be that way. And I think every software company actually needs that bug resolution, working as badly designed. Let's roll forward then a little bit then, you know. So I, I, you and a, a number of people came together, built another startup that eventually attracted the attention of Microsoft and brought a, a lot of you into Microsoft over time. And you know, for 10 years there, you're one of the leading people 
in the company in terms of business analytics or insights. So what were some of the shifts then you started to even see as you went from, you know, like, let's just say maybe a small startup-y type company to this, like, literally top four or five technology company in the world, and then trying to bring some of that innovation into a company like that? What were some of the the interesting shifts you had to make or things you had to unlearn as you went through that transition? Well, there are really two very significant shifts that happened. The first one is just about scale. Microsoft is a huge company, and you can imagine working in a huge company is is, is complex. The team I worked with within Microsoft was the largest organization I'd ever worked in. But Microsoft itself is huge, and you often have to work across organizations. So there's that. But more importantly, in terms of scale, was simply the number of customers the number of users out there. Brilliant. Excel, right. yeah. back in the day, you know, 500 million users, at least 500 million licenses, probably a billion yeah, users. Yeah, that, you know? yeah, that sounds and, about right. Uh, yeah. and, and there are certain constraints on that, that that imposes on you. It's very exciting, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely thrilling. I had a guy who worked with me, he was a program manager in my team, and he designed a little metadata tool. And he'd previously worked at a company like Informatic, I think it was, but he designed this little metadata tool. And we released it, and on the first week, it had you know a thousand downloads. He says, "This is fantastic, a thousand downloads." And our boss at that time, Alyssa, who had worked on the data objects for for, for Microsoft, said, "Oh, you know, when we release an update at ADO, we get a thousand downloads an hour. Never mind a thousand downloads in a week. <laughs> the scale is just you know beyond what you imagine." And one of the constraints that puts on you is, of course, and it's very important for innovation, is that. There's a sort of, there's a weight behind that. There's a gravity that can hold you back. You can't escape from the gravity of Excel if you're working in the Excel team. This is why it took so very long for Excel to respond to tools like Tableau and Click and actually change its visualization style because there were 500 million people who had built Excel visualizations and had spent, in many cases, hours getting them just so, aligning them just so on the page. And you can't screw up their work. They put a ton of work into that. But how do you innovate when you're held back, in a sense? When it, and, and maybe you know, held back is, is the wrong word, but when you're responsible for those yeah. 500 million users. And so that's very interesting how you square that circle. That was very important. The other thing that I sort of learned at Microsoft was the criticality of enterprise software. Just how important it is to get this right. When I was at Microsoft, I'd been there for about two years, I guess. We had uh, what's called the SQL Slammer virus, which was a virus which took down a third of the internet in those days. But I mean, it took down hospitals, ambulance services. It, it was, I guess, people died as a result of that virus. Yeah. And you learned a number of things from that. First of all, your responsibility. What was interesting was that the bug that was exploited by that virus was known about. In fact, not only was it known about, it was fixed. But people hadn't updated their software because updating the software was such a pain in the ass that they didn't do it. And we'd already known about this bug. We'd already fixed it. And people didn't do that. And that tells you something about design. It tells you something about our responsibilities, about, about working with the user. And you also learn the hard way about the criticality of making this work. You know? Yeah, they're so, fantastic lessons to, to have, even just to be exposed to, right? Like, oh, yeah, it was terrifying. These are, these are tough problems. Because, you know, often we sort of, it's easy to sort of say, yeah, we're doing innovation, we're just going to ship things. The, the classic move fast and break things analogy right. that sort of popped out of uh, the good old early days of Facebook, right? But it's also, you know, the impact of that. And actually being really aware 
of where people are at. The more and more populations you reach, the more positive and negative effects you can have on them. And I, th I think it's a real responsibility of great innovation and design to actually be fast and to be safe, to support people as well as grow your product. Like that's real tough constraints to innovate within. What have been some of the little lessons you've learned from actually being in that type of like a design problem? Yeah, yeah, this is where you really have to work very directly with people as people. Because I mean, I, I, I take this Facebook model and you move fast and break things. And you could say that's okay for Facebook because they're not mission critical. But you know, Facebook now have a mark yourself safe feature. If there's a, a bomb explosion in a town, if there's an earthquake, you can mark yourself safe. Well, what if Facebook isn't, you know, have, hasn't done a great job of that? And there's a bug in that system. And some people who are marking themselves safe don't appear as being safe. And now their relatives are, are worried. Their relatives are, are distraught because you can't get in touch with them. Never mind the usual thing of, of, you know, people being snubbed or people having, you know, social crises that arise on Facebook. It turns out that even something that you might think a few years ago was as trivial as Facebook is now actually not mission critical in a business sense but very, very influential and significant in people's lives. And a responsibility comes with that. So one of the things I learned was that you can't, first of all, you can't take responsibilities for granted, but also you shouldn't take for granted your understanding of the situation. You need to get out and actually speak to people directly and engage in their lives, not just assume that you've done research, not just assume that because you've asked them some questions in a questionnaire or you've done your user survey that you understand them. You actually need to get out and engage in their lives, meet them where they are and understand them. Give me an example of that. There were some guys in Harvard, some Asian guys, as it happens, it doesn't matter that they were Asian, but it, but it is slightly relevant. They were software developers. They were machine learning developers. And they built an application or an algorithm or a whatever that looked at um, cameras, traffic cameras in streets in Los Angeles and tried to work out if there was gang activity on the corners of the streets and things like because gang activity happens in street corners. So they could see groups of people hanging out. And they present that as a conference, uh, you know, how cool is this? We're using video recognition. We're using all this stuff to look at gang activity. And they were not ready for the response, which came from the audience, which was, well, what the hell do you know about gang activity in East Los Angeles? And, you know, <laughs> you're building this tool and you're being, people were very critical. People were saying you're being completely irresponsible, but you're also living in this ivory tower. What do you know? You know, working in Harvard without any experience of community. But not only that, how do you, what do you know about the impact that the software you're building will do? What if the police actually use this and then start to recognize gang activity or think they're recognizing gang activity? And the point there is very important that these people developing this software weren't engaged in the community that is affected by it. And this oh, no, is this profoundly is, important. Yeah, now super fascinating to me too as well, right? And it sort of goes back to your even your opening sentiments around technology for technology's sake versus understanding, pairing it with real problems and contexts and where people are at. And we're in, we're in this world now, and obviously you very deep in it, like you're, a lot of the products you've built have been everything from big data to you know, uh, the aspects of Excel, as you mentioned, cloud, SaaS, like these huge technology powers that we have now. But you know, not used in contexts about helping people, helping them make better decisions. It leads to all sorts of perversions now, right? We've seen endless debates around how particularly 
certain groups are always penalized from software that's created primarily. The first faces they used for facial recognition were they took basically prisoners and scans them to start understanding facial re- recognition for software right. and AIs. And so all these like subtle it's biases. phrenology like, all over again, you know. Absolutely, right? And I think some of these aspects, again, what, what you're alluding to, though, is that great products are built within context and, and people invest time to actually understand the context from a human perspective rather than just going, we have these amazing technology capabilities, let's just point the technology at something, like let's capture all this camera data and then see if we can draw some conclusions from it. Um, it is dangerous. Well, I think, you know, we've had this conversation, you and I have had this conversation in the past, you've heard me talking about this, ranting about this perhaps as well, would be a way to put it, which is so much software design starts from trying to understand the user problem. We, we, we start all of things. What problem are we trying to solve? I had a great mentor at Microsoft who said, you know, the secret is to solve the user problem. And if they don't have a problem, persuade them that they do and then solve that. It's all around, you know, what is the user problem? This sounds great, you know, and I, I keep hearing, you know, people giving presentations about software saying, this is the problem we're trying to solve. And well, you know where I'm going with this because I, <laughs> I know I've told you this before. I, I don't yeah, no, want to I start. Love it. Yeah, keep going. I don't want to start with a problem. I actually want to start with understanding what's good in someone's life and what their ambitions are. And when I say what's good in someone's life, what's good in their job, what's good in their business, what's good in their attitude to their business, because then the problem is something that gets in the way of that. But if you don't understand what that is, if you don't understand what that good situation is, and you solve that problem, you may solve the problem in a way which actually undermines the good situation. Give you a simple technical example of this. Big data. We all hear people talking about, oh, I'm drowning in data. We've got far too much data. We've got incomprehensible amounts of data, tsunamis of data, all sorts of things. And we see that as a problem. And so how do we solve that? Well, we reduce the amount of data or we make the data more manageable. But very often we just reduce the amount of data that people can see. And then we carry on and do, no doubt, very interesting, fascinating and valuable things with this reduced amount of data, with this reduced scope where we've helped people define things. And so now we can help them do that. But what we've completely overlooked is that actually having more data than we've ever had before, having more data than we could possibly take account of is a fantastic thing. It's a wonderful thing. A few years ago, we'd have been delighted to have that amount of data. The problem is a problem in that context of something that's very good. And people who've got large amounts of data are often, you know, we've got a ton of data, we don't know what to do with it, but then there's the implication that we could do something with it. I'm ambitious to do better customer service. And if I do better customer service, my job becomes easier. And if my job becomes easier, I enjoy it more. And there's a whole sort of human element in that. Why am I in customer service in the first place? And if you understand all that, then you solve the problem in that context. If you solve the problem as a problem with our perspective of that, the software designers, we're actually potentially shifting their window of perceptions away from what they originally thought was great about their work. We may even have you know, damaged their work. We may have damaged what was positive in their work very often by turning them into little machines who have lost that perspective of what was great in the first place. So I, my first step in, in modeling a problem that we want to start with software is not to model the problem, but to model this very positive situation. What's good sometimes 
I mean, I can remember one situation I was working with some insurance adjusters and they they couldn't come up with anything positive whatsoever in their situation. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> the only I time I recall... We know how to do. Uh, we only know this. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing that happens is somebody calls us up because they've had a problem or they've had a disaster, <laughs> which is so great. They have to make an insurance claim. And we're telling them, no, you're not getting it, or we're not giving you as much as you want. There's nothing positive in their situation. They all hate their jobs. And, uh, so that was the exception, but there's always an exception. <laughs> Most of the rest of the time, I managed to find the positive to, to model. No, not, and, you know, this is one of the things that it was one of the first conversations I think we had, and it immediately just struck me and drew me in as well. You know, I think it's such a great perspective to have. Even in Unlearn, one of the things I talk a lot about is if people get stuck on the obstacle and you just solve for this little obstacle in front of your nose, people forget about what's the bigger outcome or aspiration that they're actually trying to achieve. You know, like Absolutely. if I just constantly complain about, oh, I've got a sore knee, you know, I'll go and have surgery rather than if my aspiration is actually to get fit, healthy and active again a better approach is actually to slowly rehabilitate myself or build up muscle around my knee so I don't have to have the operation. And then actually I'm, I'm holistically better for that, right? And I think it's a really powerful way to think about what great looks like. And then really the problems are the obstacles in the way. And maybe we can, if we design for the aspiration or as, as you describe, what's, gr what's great in the world, that's you're thinking bigger, it cr actually creates more options potentially to get there. And, or you can experiment with options to get there where sometimes when we start with a problem, it becomes very incremental. It becomes the thing that's right in front of our nose and we fix that the next thing in the chain, but it, it can make the chain worse. Doesn't solve the actual deeper underlying problems or as your point as well, it may even take away what was so great in the first instance. And I think it's just such a, a really interesting way to look at the world because so many people just every pitch deck and I like you, you spend a huge amount of time in this work with your and you know even in the studio you see this too as well like people always talking about the problem they're solving rather than some great world that they want to create and people can be part of and I just think it's a great way for people to think about this but it does take thinking it doesn't come naturally it does take research it does take understanding so there, you know, there's work to be done you know, most of us are kind of work shy when it comes to those things. We want to work on a set of assumptions rather than do what can be a bit the very difficult work, actually, very complex and, and just hard work of, of finding out what's really going on. Well, this feels just like a perfect bridge then to talk a little bit about uh, Nobody Studios. And specifically, you know, one of the things you'll be doing a lot for the studio is that tough work that you just described, <laughs> right? Like, like, yeah, what have uh, I signed up for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe you could share a little bit about your inspiration, even for what drew you into the studio. And then, you know, what, the areas that you will specifically be diving into of, of doing this sort of hard work of like going out looking and not doing research, but actually making it usable in the guise of these great worlds we want to create for the companies that we're actually going to be building. So share a little bit then, kick off, like, how did you get drawn into this journey? Right, yeah, well, it's kind of fascinating. First of all, the simple version of how I get drawn in is because Mark McNally, the head of Nobody Studio, asked me to be part of it. And he's a guy who I greatly respect and enjoy his company and enjoy his personality and his business perspectives. And so that that's a very easy kind of 
low impedance version of, of, of why. But the more interesting part, in a way, is that the vision of Mark articulated, which was this vision of rapidly building a very large number of startups, but doing it in a way that was very different from the traditional venture model. And that appeals to me because the traditional venture model, to my mind, is extremely broken because it's driven by a financial model rather than a social model. And actually, it's driven by sometimes a technical model, which is about protecting IP rather and, and, and building value in IP rather than business model, which is about the services that you actually provide. When I look at venture startups, nearly all of them that I see are built around a financial model and a technology model. Business and society comes somewhere else. In fact, I see a lot of companies building technologies, which almost don't, which are just built to be acquired. They have no intention of, of, of running a business, you know. Ask people, I mean, imagine, you know, 30 years ago, somebody starts a shop, somebody starts a, a business in, in Dublin or Glasgow, and their intention would have been to build a business that ultimately they could have passed on to their kids. I'll, I'll build, you know, this, this craft business, I'll build this engineering business, I'll build this publishing business, this printing business. And nowadays, you know, our intention is we build something and where's our exit in three or four years? And that's driven by finance. That's not driven by social need. That's not driven even by social responsibility. It's just driven by very, very short-term vision. Now, what's interesting then to me about what Mark said is you might think he's actually taking this to extreme when you hear it at first. We're going to build hundreds of these companies. We're going to build dozens of them. We're going to do it really, really quickly. Surely that's the extreme version of that. But actually, it's, it's not. It's the, almost the inverse of it. And the reason is, is because the traditional venture model focuses on a small number of companies which can meet those financial and technical requirements. Whether the idea is good, sustainable, valuable, responsible, engaging, that's not the question. Does it meet some basic questions of IP and does it meet some basic questions of finance? Which means that there's a lot of ideas out there which could be tried out, which people have, frankly, I think they have a right to try them, or at least I think it's great to give them an opportunity to try them. And they don't get the opportunity because they can't get on that wagon. And so what Mark is doing, ironically, the model that speeds up this process and gives it a lighter touch is exactly that. It's a lighter touch model that focuses on the value of what's going to be created in human, social, personal, business, if it's, if it's B2C, you know, consumer terms, but not focused on checking some boxes technically or financially. Yeah. Does it go into the SaaS spreadsheet and can we make the numbers work? First, you know, right, exactly. That's, no. that's one of the most fascinating things about this, right? And I think opening up the options for the amount of people that can be involved Everything from the entrepreneurs that start a company to the people who can join our crowdfund and, and actually be a part of the journey and see potential upside from that. You know, I think it's, it's fascinating to try and open up and, and maybe innovate that whole venture world. Like for many people, they think of venture capital as it's a murky world. It's something that happens in yeah. closed doors and it's not accessible to people. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things I think about what we're doing is demystifying that a little bit and, and making it more human, to your point. Uh, I think so. And, and, you know, we can learn from the best venture capitalists. 
And by best, I don't mean the ones that make necessarily the most money. I mean the ones that we like. It's the ones who, who've got the best model, the ones who are most responsible and most engaged and most supportive of, of their projects. That's great. We can learn. We, there's so much that we can learn from them. But we can bring something else as well. I think when you look at the crowdfunding world, I think that's a fascinating way of bringing more people into this into this venture model, and that's going to be that's going to be super interesting because the examples that we have out there of crowdfunding are and, and the large examples that we have of crowdfunding. So people think of Kickstarter, GoFundMe, which is you know more of a what do you what do you call GoFundMe? GoFundMe is more sort of helping people. It's not really funding stuff. But one of the things I I, I look at that is that people are. Kickstarter is a great example. Kickstarter keeps telling people, we're not a shop. You're not buying something. You're actually helping to build a project and there'll be a, a benefit for you from that. And I want us to see it looking at venture funding somewhat like that. We do need to remind people that it is an investment. You are putting money in. You do hope to get something out, but you're also part of an adventure. You're part of something. You're part of a purpose. And we need to be very focused on what those purposes are. And every company that comes out of Nobody Studios will have a different purpose. But you're part of that purpose. If the purpose is making rental better for people who want to rent apartments, if the purpose is making uh, yacht chartering better, if the purpose is enabling people to have better conversations at work, if the purpose is enabling parents to exchange guidelines about tips and tricks that they have from parenting, then you're aligned to that purpose. You're part of that community. And I think that's a very exciting thing in a way that putting money into a venture fund isn't. There's a social element about it. Yeah, I love this. And it's one of my, again, one of my favorite comments I heard you say very early is you talk about like, what, what are people sort of investing in, in a way? And it's, as, as right. you're alluding to here, it's, they're not just putting finance into this, they're putting themselves into this, the things that they believe in. And I think it's a, it was a really great question, I think you threw to all of us at one point, is like helping people understand that and we also understanding that for ourselves, which again goes a little bit back to this point of we're not doing venture for venture's sake, like we're not doing a technology company for technology's sake. It's about the, the people, the human side, about what, what will people be on this journey with us for? And I think right. this is and about the experience of being about. part of it. It's, yeah. yeah. It's got to be an yeah. experience. It's got to be an experience that we can take people along. I think that's super important. Because one of the reasons that Kickstarter is successful, actually, is that there's a sort of experience, you know, around that. A lot of people get this with microfinance. People enjoy microfinance. Now, I, I know microfinance has its problems. I think it's got a lot of advantages. But people absolutely feel they're part of the experience. Yeah. And I think that's special. It's a unique thing to have. Yeah. So looking forward then, what are some of the things that you're most excited about for the, the road ahead as you, you think either both necessarily within the studio that we're building together with our team, but even just the industry in general, as you look forward, like you, you've really, you've such a broad interest set from helping farmers in Rwanda build tools so that they can improve their farming techniques right through to these complex big data algorithmic systems. So but I'm curious to hear like, what's sort of lighting you up at the moment as you look ahead. Well, I think what, what gets me excited, and I will talk about Nobody Studios for, for a little bit, but I think what gets me excited in the most general terms is that we're seeing two things coming together in our society as a whole. And one of those things is simply the applicability of technology, and in particular, my area of technology, which is data and analytics. You know, I'm, I'm not helping a Rwandan farmer design a tool. 
I'm helping advising the data team, which then uses data to analyze the productivity of Rwandan farmers, which helps them to do A-B testing of different tool designs. But that's an application of my technology. That's stuff that I would have done, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I was, you know, assessing um, algorithms or database optimizations can suddenly be applied to the design of hand tools for a local market. And it's the same technique. And isn't that kind of exciting that my area of technology, because we can now get out to people, everybody's got smart devices, we can collect data, we can analyze things, we can bring my area of technology into this, into the world as a whole and, and make some, do some amazing things. The other thing, which is the other social aspect, which is now joining with that, is I think we're genuinely going through crises in the world. Not one crisis, but a number. And, and this is not surprising. This happens in history. I think we may be going through some of the, the worst crises, some of the, the most potentially damaging and some of the dangerous crises that we've seen in history, partly because we have the largest population we ever had in history, and our technology enables us to have a bigger impact on the environment and on ourselves than we ever had in history. So, you know, the, the crisis becomes blown up for those reasons. Even though they may be relatively minor things that we do, the crisis is more dramatic because of its scale and, and the degree of impact we can have. So if you bring our technologies, which enable us to investigate, understand, test, design, and respond more effectively than ever before, with crises that are bigger, more dramatic, more accelerated than ever before, then I think we have a, a critical role to play. And it starts to, to, to go from, you know, things that I did years ago that were felt like a hobby or felt like a, an interest, I now feel are actually critical in, in, in society and I'm a, there's a critical role to play. So that's really important. That motivates me. Yeah. And it's exciting. What excites me when I look at the work I'm doing, the specific work that I'm doing, and, and this is what I want to say about, about Nobody Studios, is this ability to reach people as people more than ever before. And I can do that. When I worked at Microsoft Night, we, we mentioned scale, you know, that we're 500 million Excel users. And I couldn't possibly, you know, you can't go out and survey them all. You kind of can now. In fact, you can do a whole lot of stuff now. You might not get responses from 500 million, but you can use techniques like canarying. You can use A-B testing. There's all sorts of techniques you can use. I mean, after all, Google, Facebook, their algorithms evaluate in very fine detail the behavior of far more than 500 million people. So it is actually possible to work at that kind of scale. And one of the things I'm really excited about at Nobody is being able to engage with people in a very, very personal way. We will touch lives. When I worked at Click, we had a goal at Click of touching a billion lives. It would be very indirect. It would be, you know, yes, we actually optimize this banking system in Sweden, and therefore we're touching 50 million lives because we're optimizing this banking system. But what I think we can do is we can get out and touch 50 million lives very, very directly. We can help them with all sorts of aspects of their lives. Uh, yeah, and no, I love it. It's so exciting. Yeah, and even as you share it, it always keeps coming back to me of this uh, sort of underlying principle of, of everything you're doing is starting with people. How can you make their, their world better? What's good about their world? What could be better? How can we use technology as a lever or leverage that to make it even better? either through being able to gain insights about how the world is good, bad, and different, but also as you try to make it better, understanding if it's moving in the trajectory that we want. And I think it's just such a great perspective to design and build from. And 
I have to say I'm I'm more than excited about how that's going to show up in all the companies and collaborations we do over the next number of years to build these hundreds of companies at Nobody Studios. It's going to be pretty fun. I'm it's sure going to be fascinating. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I just want to thank you again, Donald, for coming on and sharing again, some of your history, some of your stories, some of your insights and I've no doubt we're going to have you back on the show maybe in a year's time or so. We'll, we can do a, a share on, on where we've got to and that. I think it'll be kind of fun to share that with people again. Great. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure chatting with you, as always. Likewise. As always. As always. Thank you. <laughs>